2: Hey Mitch, hey Mitch,
1: hey Mitch,
2: hey Mitch, hey Mitch, hey Mitch, hey Mitch, hey Mitch,
1: hey Mitch, hey Mitch.
0: All right, in tonight's episode, I am welcoming back a former guest to Hey Mitch, Chris Sheffield, director. But he is bringing along with him his co director for World's Revenge, Kellen Gardner. Thank you both for coming on and thank you for making such a great movie.
2: Aww. No one's ever thanked me for making a movie before.
0: I mean, <laughs> everybody should thank everybody for the art that they create. It's p- putting something new into the world.
2: I agree with you 100%. That's true. Yeah.
0: <laughs> uh, I want to ask, like, Kellen, you also wrote this movie. What? made you want to do a Western?
1: Well, I've, I've actually written a few Westerns. It is, uh, it's always something I've wanted to do. Um, but this film coming together is sort of strange in that I was actually hired to write this script and it was somebody else's story. Really? And yeah. And in fact, the producer of our film, George Nelson is the, sort of the this is his brainchild he wrote this original script or original treatment of this story 20 years ago working as a as a stuntman doing western stunt shows and he had a bunch of friends that sort of collaborated and and so in their minds 20 years ago back when I was a teenager these guys all had it in their mind they were going to make a western and they were all going to star as these characters. Well, that never happened. And to George's credit, what he what he's always said to me is he's done enough projects to know that he's not a director. And so he approached me in December, right after Christmas and said, I want you to read something. We had worked on a couple smaller little projects in the past, actually with Sheffield as well. And uh, we had a blast doing it, but he came to me in December and said, "I I wrote this thing. It's not done. I don't know what it is, but I know what I want it to be. Would you take a look at it and see?" And so he sent me what he had, which were these old script pages, and there were fractions of scenes that are in the finished film. Uh, But at the at the heart of it, it was really a story about these four siblings these, and it, and it was a Western and he knew that I love Westerns and I've, I've written and tried to get Westerns made in the past and haven't been able to. And, uh, and so I said, well, what do you want to do with this? And which and his mind was, let's just make like a little, I don't know, a, a sizzle reel, right? Something that, you know, we can shoot and hopefully we can make something cool with a lot of action, and then maybe we'll get investors, and we can do a feature. Well, I've been there before, when somebody's like, "Hey, let's make a trailer," <laughs> and I just, I just, I hate the idea. Um, I just feel like, especially having made features before, the the distance between the hard work of putting together a feature, even if it's a smaller feature and putting all that work together for a sizzle reel no one will ever see just has never made any sense to me. And so I thought, let's meet in the middle. Let me write a short film that we can finish and release and people can see it. And then if somebody wants to go back and and throw money at a short film, we could always go back and reshoot it and make a feature. So that was our intention, (laughs) and uh, and so I wrote a script that ended up being I think the original draft was thirty pages, but it didn't feel like a short. Even Chef was like, "Oh man, this is like this is a lot of work. (laughs) This is not a this is not a short film." But it's I mean it was only thirty pages, so we just thought, well, let's see what it is. We don't know what it is, but it felt like it had a sort of a first act, you know, one act play structure to it we ended up shooting that and by the time we edited it together uh, it was 50 minutes but it was tight it was a tight 50 minutes it was there was no fat on it and so we were like man this is a dilemma because it's too long to be a short film and it's too short to be a feature <laughs> so we and and these guys pay they financed this thing and so we were like well what do we do and they were over the moon with just the rough cut. And so we we're like, well, we gotta, I don't want to cut anything. Everything we shot was great. So we did the most bass backwards thing you could do as a filmmaker, which is after after shooting what is actually the second and third act of the movie, we went back to the drawing board and we wrote a first act. Whoa. Uh, and then A few months after that, we went and shot the first act of the movie and ended up adding what what, I think we added another 30 or 40 pages to the script. But we also ended up adding an hour to that movie in that first act. Mm. And uh, one of the things I'm, I'm proudest of is other than telling you that nobody noticed it's just a scene. It's a, it feels like an intentional thing, but we had to kind of work backwards and figure out, well, where did these people come from and how did they get here? Cause we already had a starting point. <laughs> we had to kind of re-engineer a beginning to this story, which was really strange. It was like making a prequel to a movie we already made. And so it's been a crazy and uh, mind you, we did this while trying to navigate COVID and go back to set in the summertime. And, and that changed the dynamic of our set dramatically as well. So it's been just to, to be talking about this in October after being pitched a story in December. And here we are with a theatrical release I wanna I wouldn't say that it it feels strange, but this has kind of been part from the course for Chef and I's working relationship over the last <laughs> decade. It's, yeah. Our films always find a way to just <laughs> be the the abnormal experience in some form or fashion.
2: Sorry. Either
1: intentionally or unintentional.
2: Sometimes it makes me sad because I, I talk to and, and i and I don't say this to say that like we're special or anything, but I talk to some other indie filmmakers who have tried to do film uh, on the same scale that ours are. And when I say scale, I mean like micro skeleton crew, uh, almost no budget, um, you know, kind of like scraping around every day to find out how, like, what's the best way we can shoot this scene with how little we have here. And I, I always hear so many horror stories, so many people that just had so many bad experiences. Um, and, but like Kellen and I uh, several times in a row now have made these tiny little films that have turned a profit for us, uh, you know, and have found their audiences and, you know, like it might be like an extremely exhausting shoot, uh, which you know I don't I don't recommend that to anybody who doesn't love doing that. Um, but when you get like a Facebook message from somebody that you've never met that lives in like the Midwest and they tell you they love your movie, like every you know every fourteen-hour day is fine at that point. Like everything is okay. Yeah. All the struggle is worth it.
0: The fourteen-hour days and the extra uh, precautions now because of COVID. Uh,
2: yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it's funny because COVID uh, dictates to a lot of the larger productions. You know, it makes it very, very difficult because most, most films will have anywhere uh, from, you know, 45 to 50 people on set at any given time on the low end, um, which is great. You know, for them, it makes it a, a, sm- a smooth, like kind of well-oiled machine. But, you know, with COVID, that's very, very difficult. But indie films, we always have tiny crews. So now we just have like the skeleton crew that we have on like pickup days now just becomes the core crew. And you have to like be aware of that when you're planning to shoot something. So, you know, if you're – say like if I'm going to shoot in a church and I know that I need to light a gigantic church and I'm only going to have a skeleton crew, then I need to plan to have a day before in that church to set the lights up so that on the day I'm not rushing to do it. You know, So it just kind of – it just adds that extra level of like – planning to the process, but it's not impossible. And that's the thing with indie film is like, if anything is going to survive COVID, it's indie film. Like we're already used to doing everything, you know, without, without huge amounts of resources. So we'll find
0: a way. Well, I do. I definitely want to say, Kellen, that I did not uh, realize that, that that, those were two different things that you had shot there. I I am floored by the fact that you, you told that story. Um, I also wanted to say like, is the fact that you got the work so to speak the script in december and then now it's in theaters in october less than a year out like later is that normal is that uh is i mean obviously in december yeah. you had no idea covid was going to hit in february march like right. did, did 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 that did that make it change in a big way because like for just coming out
1: i don't think so i think one thing I'll say about our producers, George and and his business partner, Ed Vanderley, who who was just as much responsible for ushering this project along, you know, Jeff and I both have worked. I'm, I would say me personally, I'm, I'm used to sort of producing my own things and so I answer to myself only. And so uh, but Sheffield on the other hand has obviously done tons of client-based work and freelancing and and so he's worked with all kinds of producers both good and bad both people who mean what they say and people who fall through the cracks and so it was a it was a I would say it, it was an adjustment for me to have to answer to people but if I'm going to answer to anybody answering to these guys was great because they were just as pushy and as ambitious as we were like they had really high expectations not just about the quality of what we were trying to do but the delivery system and i just have for me personally i i have been involved in other projects that never saw the light of day as an actor or whatever and i hate that and i just if i'm ever going to make a movie like it's going to get released it may not be that fast but I'm not going to tinker with a project for four years until I get the mood right. Like if you didn't get it right on the page, just throw your footage on YouTube and hope for the best. Like it's not going to (laughs) happen. And so I just feel like for me, it's a race against time. I, I feel like it's when you're trying to build an audience, you need the momentum of getting into the next thing and, whether that's for me writing or it's giving the audience something else to watch. And so I get really antsy. And so when the, when the, when it's finished, you know, when the edits locked and the sound is mixed, like kind of none of my business anymore. It's just sort of like out of my hands. And then I look forward to that because it frees me up to move on to whatever is coming next, you know,
2: yeah, to say, to say something in, in uh, George and Ed's uh, favor, like when we started to work on the, the what is the second run of the film, but what was the first half of the film, at that point we all understood it was going to be a feature. And those guys also understood from the very beginning that COVID was going to present a very unique opportunity for an indie film. Uh, because, you know, like as currently, like all of the big films are out of theaters, um, nothing that was being worked on at the time that we started working on our movie, all of the other productions had shut down everything that was supposed to come out on streaming. Nothing was, you know, had release dates. So it was like, we have this, we have half of a product that we're really proud of. So we, they knew that if we could churn out the other half and get it done quickly, then we could take advantage of that slot essentially. So now that the thing is in the, you know, they, they worked really hard on their end, uh, you know, doing the producer thing with relationships and people and getting the film, the slots that it has with Harkin theaters, um, that it would never have gotten if COVID hadn't already wiped out all the big dogs, you know, in the middle of summer. So, uh, like it is not normal for a film to be like in its theatrical run in the same year that you shoot it. It's pretty fantastic, honestly, that within a couple months of us starting the project, it is where it's at. Um, but I would say that, um, Obviously, everybody that worked on it uh, worked really, really hard to make that happen. But I want to make sure those guys get credit because they opened every door in front of us that they could to allow us that sort of forward momentum to get it to where at now. And there
1: were a lot of doors closed. Yeah, I mean, it's not like somebody rolled out the carpet for us and said, "Oh, finally, yeah, no. indie western. Yeah. We've been dying for." It. Like <laughs> these guys, these guys broke down doors to get it to where it was, and it and it got. You know, they they got pushy when they needed to, as any good producer will do. Um, and they were, but they were also realistic when we pushed back and saying we need more time to get this right, or whatever. We're not precious about it, but we we knew where the areas in post production were going to be important to get it right, and to and that requires a little patience. Yeah, and that's 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 just the nature of it. It's hard for me because I'm not a patient person, but I understand having sat and watched that process play out that there's just some things. I mean, even writing, I don't, I don't start a second draft the the day after I finish the first, I need to, I need to digest it and and fall out of love with it and start to hate it a little bit (laughs) before I go back to it. And I need people to tell me why it sucks. And that's why I keep Sheffield around (laughs) because everybody else might just throw praise and be like, Oh my gosh, it's the best thing you've ever written. And chef's like, eh, eh. and then and then I get those notes and then they start to percolate. So time is time can be an excuse. It can be something that that you use as a barrier or a blanket to surround yourself and feel comfortable. But uh, but it can also add to the the artistry. I mean, you just have time to let it marinate a little bit and figure out what is this film? What is it? What are we trying to say? Mm-hmm.
0: So then what what were you trying to say?
1: Well, I was, you know, going back to the Western thing. I've always wanted to make Western. I've always said, you know, sort of privately or anybody who cared to listen that no matter what the shape of my career would be years from now when I'm on my deathbed, what I want them to say about me is, oh, he's the Western guy. Oh, that's that's not to say I don't want to make other things. I've got so many other avenues and ideas, but. I've always kind of liked the the, the sort of old school directors as sort of identified, you know, Don Ford made a lot of different types of films, but he's sort of the Western guy. Sergio Leone as a, a brilliant Italian director who, who gave us films like once upon a time in America, but he's the Western guy.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and I, I, I don't know what that looks like in this century. Um, but I just feel like whenever I have some new or exciting original thought, there's always a little bit of a Western slant in the same way that you see that with a lot of the Coen brothers films. Yeah. Even Fargo feels like a Western sometimes, you know? Um, but I, again, I've written several Western scripts, some that I love. And I, every time you write one, it breaks your heart because they're so expensive. Um <clears throat> But what George's script, I'd never really adapted somebody else's work before. But what interested me is, I wanted to make a movie about siblings. That's what struck me. I was like, okay, it is a Western. It's gonna have all the Western tropes. I was like, but this is really a love story as most of my films tend to be, but it's a love story about brothers and sisters. and, And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, I have a big family, I've got siblings, and we're all kind of like the Royals, we are sort of a different band apart in that we're we live in different states, from different parental marriages. I've got half siblings. and so it's not a it's not a traditional atomic family. it's more it's, I think, more modern. And so I, I thought, well, this would be fun to examine the family structure in a Western film and play with that a little bit. That was the part that interested me the most about it's not just a revenge story. I was like, it's really, that's the part that grabbed me more than anything. That's why I really wanted to, to make it. So.
0: No. Yeah. I, I love the, the, the aspect of the siblings coming together. Like it's, it's definitely not something you see often and it was refreshing. Like uh, you're saying uh, the Western, you know, comes back into fashion at least once a decade in Hollywood. It, it, They always yeah. come back to it because it's a, it's a relatable story.
1: Well, and it feels like even if people don't write, like my, my sister-in-law came to the premiere and she has been to all my other films or whatever, but she's like, you know, I think this is the first Western I've ever seen. And at first I was wow. like... What? <laughs> but then but then I kind of you know, I, I was like, Well, what about Star Wars? I mean Star Wars is a Western. Yeah and, Star Wars, and and I really feel like right now Westerns are, are having a moment. I mean The Mandalorian is a Western. Um Taylor Sheridan has one of the biggest shows on cable with Yellowstone. Yep. Um and then he, he he made Wind River and and then there was Hell or High Water. I mean the Western is really it just changes form. Mm-hmm there might be fewer horses from time to time, but it is, it is such a, the Western is to, to America, what Shakespeare is to, to Europe. I mean, it's just the thing that everybody wants to try. Some do it really, really well. Some don't, <laughs> but uh, you can find those on Redbox. but, <laughs> but it is, it, I'm always going to be down to see somebody's interpretation of, of what the western is as a genre but also what are those themes that sort of keep reoccurring in a western format so
0: it's great the what you what you were able to portray in the in the story and uh yeah i liked it i liked it a lot
2: who is your favorite sibling clubber <laughs> yeah. Damage, right. Fade. He's going to get everyone, Kellen. He's going to get. You grew that mustache for nothing, dude. You oh, no, know. I'm walking the floor with everybody. The
1: Shane. I it's mean, really, a,
2: I need a rewrite.
1: <laughs> I gave him all the jokes. You did. I told him when we were making it, I was like, you know, it kind of sucks. I'm the. I'm like the. The Raphael of this little ninja turtle, tree. <laughs> and he got yeah. all the Michelangelo lines, man.
0: He, he sure yeah. did. He sure did. He
1: got, he got all the calabangas <laughs> <laughs> He got. Oh, yeah, so here's so here's the funny thing. I'll tell you about Shade. Um, Chade and I have been friends for over a decade, um, longer than that, fifteen years or whatever. Uh, we, we just, when we met, we like became instant best friends and I can't really understand why, because there's, there's a lot of ways in which we're nothing alike. And what's, what's extraordinary about Jade is he shares my passion for Westerns, but he doesn't come from any kind of film or theater background. In fact, he worked on a little small project that that Chef and I shot last year. It was just like a little five minute short, which was also a little Western thing, but very different. And that, he was so nervous about that because that was his first. Role. So this is not only his like first movie; this is his first acting role ever. And I just think he killed it. I mean, some people just have that factor, that it factor, that charisma, and uh, and they just know how to channel it. And I just felt like he did everything we wanted him to do with that role. Like he fully embodied. The physicality, but also the, the humor and the, the charm that we were looking for. I just, I mean, I literally wrote that part for him. I structured it for him because I knew I wanted him. That, part. that was something Jeff and I agreed on pretty much from, from the get-go once we were sort of casting uh, the film.
0: Yeah, he has he has the he has all the the funny lines like you said, but he's also got that <laughs> that uh, smile and charm that just exudes on screen. So uh, you you have to enjoy him. It's it's kind of you know just what you did for him. That that was great. Yeah. Yeah, I told him
1: and I was like I made you look really. Good. <laughs> I mean,
0: but speaking of that of acting, like not only did you do the screenplay and co direct, you're also the star. Like. How is that? I mean, obviously, you usually do your own productions, but like for this to be all three.
1: Um, That's, yeah, that's been par for the course actually for for my feature films. Um, Sort of started out of necessity, but it's become, and maybe it still is, but it's kind of a thing. Uh, When I read George's script, what was obvious to me from the way he'd written the roles was that his original intention was to play Travis Royal, but he had, him and his friends had just aged out of those roles. Um, Had we done it that way traditionally, I mean, the slave character would have had to be like 90 years old, which didn't make a lot of sense. And so, (laughs) um, so we revisited that and uh, I, I had to basically, I I didn't audition necessarily, but I pitched myself as Travis. I was like, I, I get what you're trying to do with this guy, And I think I can play this. And they're like, well, you're not really the cowboy type. You're more of the California, you know, laid back guy. But I was like, trust me. I've been dying to do this. You know, I I will bring this home for you. Um, So a lot of it was just there on the page. A lot of it was what George wrote. And I've had, I come from a theater background, so... I'm already hands-on in any production that I'm involved in, whether it's, you know, a play or a movie. Like, I like to understand all of the components of the project, not just show up and, like, I've only read the, my lines. I have not read the rest of the script. Like, <laughs> some actors are prone to do. But um, but with this, this felt a little different, and Sheffield uh, kind of saved me on this one in that he who has been my DP on my other projects, sort of pitched himself as co-director. He recognized early from the drafts that we were going to do something pretty, pretty hefty.
2: Yeah, there was was a a very big demand for what we were going to be shooting for the amount of days that we were going to have and the size of the crew. And I knew that, like, if i knew that basically like if if i could be turned over the reins for the shooting day that i could get it through that cuz i was i'm very familiar with that kind of scrappy production from the technical side so i was like okay like i know like if i can just be turned over and given like that sort of control that i can do that but also since kellen and i have worked on so many projects in you know in sort of this similar dynamic there's no like uh, neither one of us was in fear of losing power at any given point, you know, because we already know that we have sort of a cohesive, like, co-working dynamic. So that way, like, Kellen could just work on the scene and be in the scene and be the character. And, you know, because we we had all these discussions beforehand where we talked about whatever we wanted to get out of each scene. So there was already that trust going into it that he could sort of of give himself to the character and then I could run the set and I could throw notes at him that were in line with what we had already sort of hashed out together for where we wanted to go with it. So yeah. I would say that what our working relationship
1: sounds strange to a lot of people, but it's, I don't think it's as as uncommon as people might assume. If you look at re- the partnership relationships that exist in the studio system where you take big stars, like guys like Leonardo DiCaprio who works with Martin Scorsese on a regular basis, they develop projects together with the intention of, starring and directing, and there's already so many conversations about what they're doing with the story and with the character that you almost feel like the the stars do have sort of producing say in how things are going. Or you see that a lot with the way Tom Cruise has handled most of his films, but especially the Mission Impossible films with Christopher McQuarrie. They have a very, almost a marriage Yeah it looks like from what you can tell in, and you don't see Christopher McQuarrie standing behind Tom Cruise going, um, excuse me, why are you telling actors what to do? Like they just know they trust the the, the, the overall process of how they make those movies because they're kind of improvisational. I mean, that's, what's extraordinary about those those big action films like that is that they half the time they don't even have a finished script. So what we did was not totally out of left field because in a micro way, it's kind of the same, same thing. We just approached it with the sense of like, look, we trust each other. I know that, I know that he's not going to give me weird notes as a director that don't make any sense. (laughs) I know that we both want to make our day. He trusts me to, to know where I'm at in my headspace as an actor from scene to scene, like, but I'm always still sort of that have that self-awareness of like the production and the day and where we need to be. So that's not so insular. Um, I'm sure there's other actors who really struggle with wearing those two hats, but I think my theater background has made it that That's just how I've had to be Um, because you have to be aware of where the edge of the stage is so you don't fall off. And so I can be in a scene and be in a moment, but also be aware that, hey, don't trip over that thing. It's dark when you walk off the stage. And Directing and acting at the same time, it's kind of the same thing of like being in tune with a moment, getting lost in it, but also not tripping over a (laughs) (laughs) C-stand.
0: Were there any issues in uh, making your days? Uh, when, when on set this when you were horses, doing horses. horses working with <laughs> yeah. the animals, right? Not supposed yeah. to do it. No animals, horses. no kids.
2: Man, nobody, horses. nobody, yeah, nobody say this to the horse union, but they don't hit their marks on set at all.
1: Right? <laughs> I mean, I feel like there should be some sort of penalty. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: man, um, horses, horses are very difficult. But I, I think like. Guns we we i was very very cuz i have been on enough indie sets where the crew gets run ragged and people who come out you know in good faith to work on something that's low budget and they, a lot of people come out and do it you know just for the love of it and i've seen those people get you know used to death on set and i i absolutely hate it and i will not do it um so i was i was very very strict in our schedule that like it, even even if it was even if it came down to putting that pressure on Kellen and myself to like nail a scene in three takes and three takes only, like I did not want to go over twelve hours on any of the days. Um, and we were very successful and like we shot this production in an insane amount of days, and we never went over twelve once. Um, the only time that I'm sorry, I'm lying. We did go over once, but it was while we were on the site that we were basically like camping out in. So there wasn't like nobody would had like a long drive home after we literally just walked, you know, 20 feet toward the trailers we were staying in and went, went to bed. So, yeah. uh, yeah. So like I, yeah, as far as like the production days, like there were definitely individual things in doing like an indie film with this much shorter production value. Like, um, say for instance, when we have a shootout that involves like 40 people in a town, sometimes the guy you're supposed to light on fire is missing mm-hmm. and you're just like, Oh great. Like, can we find them so we can light them on fire and get this day moving? <laughs> so, you know, like, like there's, you know, and then, uh, some things, uh, one of, one of my favorite stories is, uh, one of the days we were supposed to have horses to do pickups for like the big shootout. We didn't have horses. Uh, they just couldn't, it, it couldn't be done. The, the budget wouldn't allow for us to rent horses again for another day. They couldn't be found locally that were available on that day. Um, but we had a couple different scenes that we had not like scenes, but like individual shots, where an actor had to be on top of a horse and dismount. Um, so what we ended up doing was using our stunt coordinator, uh, or he was our fight coordinator on this one, uh, Russell, Russell Clay, wonderful guy. He used to work on a Walker, Texas Ranger back in the day. Uh, literally, like he just stepped up and was like, let me do this. And uh, so the actors got up on his shoulders, and then he like had them on his shoulders so that we could be shooting up at the actor while he sort of imitated like the movement of a horse. And then, I told the actors, I was like, hey, uh, hold your hand out like you're holding on to the rain, so your hand's not floating free. And Russell's like, hold on, hold on. And he, like, gets his long hair and puts in the ponytail, and he's like, grab that. So the actor's literally, like, holding on to Russell's ponytail, like, <laughs> pretending like he's on a horse, just for these, like, like, two or three shots where we were looking up at them while they were, like, riding. It's hilarious. And you'll never notice it in the edit. They did such a good job.
1: Nope. I'd like, to, I'd like to point out that I was taking a walking lunch while this shot
2: occurred. <laughs>
1: Had I known, I would have called, I would have got the Union Reps in there and be like, nope, shut it down. But it was pretty it was pretty comical to see the the behind the scenes photos of it uh, just <laughs> and, a, a, a few hours later. <laughs>
2: yeah. One of the shots was with uh, Aaron Aaron Forsberg who played uh, Pete Royal and he Aaron, if you couldn't tell from the from the footage, is super tall and uh so even when he was like on russia's shoulders with his like his legs would like dangle to like Russ's knees like, <laughs> he was so big and rush just like like a champion and by the way russell he played the um the kansas city kid so the guy that was in the boxing match against clubber mm-hmm. that was that was our fight coordinator so he's he's like a bulky dude and so yeah he was just shouldering uh this grown man on his shoulders pretending to be a horse it was wonderful
0: you know i was i was gonna ask you if uh you had to if you had Lens's like wide enough to film aaron uh, forsberg yeah he's a, he, was, he seemed like a, a tall guy so he's a giant yeah. man, it's
2: a tall he drink of water <laughs> so, yeah all it's in the so, saddle. so difficult to frame him with some of the other actors and like that's not his fault because he's a great actor but
1: yeah well, we had a we had a whole we had a confrontation on a on a boardwalk outside the saloon and we had to build like sort of a trench of apple boxes for me to even (laughs) confront him because the, the height difference was such a joke.
2: (laughs) I mean, it would have looked like he was yelling at a little kid. And And, 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 and in that scene too, Aaron like, like hits Kellen and like throws him against the wall. We're like, this is going to look really bad if we don't at least level their height a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
1: We got some good photos of that as well. Oh, I
0: I can I can only imagine. Uh so was that part of uh speaking of the horses was that part of the casting? Like did they have the actors have to know how to ride a horse?
1: You know, I, it, it, with a, with a production like this and the time that we had to pull it together. I mean, it's kind of the running joke of like putting your special skills on your resume. Like that's really what it came down to. Is like we I knew I knew Chad Road um And Aaron told us that he grew up around horses and he proved pretty proficient. But um, when it came to, you know, casting some of the actors, it was like, have you been on a horse? (laughs) Yes. I was on the carousel at Disneyland when I was five. Perfect. That works. You're in. (laughs) We'll figure out the rest later. And so. Yeah.
2: We only had, uh, we only had one instance where we needed a, a stunt ride. Um, and that was just, and, and, uh, because the horse was moving so quickly and because it was a trained horse that like, when you kick it into gear, it just explodes. Like we had, we were literally tracking it with a truck is the only way that we could get a shot, you know, going alongside this horse to use a, a moving vehicle. So for that reason, we were like, let's get an experienced rider and just throw the outfit on them and, and, you know, shoot it from afar.
1: Well, and we were, and we were doing a dangerous stunt. It's not like they were right. Yeah. We're just moving in a straight line. There was, there was a stunt aspect involved
2: in a film truck
1: basically yeah, and, four feet from the horse. So mm-hmm. it was
2: already a sort of precarious situation. Yeah, and and uh, Aaron, Aaron actually had the most difficult horse uh, of the bunch and he handled it like a champion. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There's one stunt that for, for editing reasons and for like story reasons, never actually made it into the final cut of the film, but you can see it in the trailer. Um, that Aaron pulled off really well, uh, but we could only get one take of it because the horse was like so difficult that it was about to start rearing up on him. Oh. So, yeah, we ended up like, we got one take of it, and it worked. It was, in the, it was in the first draft of the film, but after we went back and sort of reshot some of the action pieces, uh, we just did some stuff that felt stronger character-wise. And we're like, we don't really need this shot that kind of worked, you know? But to Aaron's credit, like he handled that horse like a champion, so...
0: Hey, it worked out for the trailer, so there you go. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. It's a great, great spot for the trailer. <laughs> right.
0: Speaking of uh, filming, um, at one point in the story in the movie, uh, when Travis is is has been shot and he's a little dazed, you know, things are happening. I don't know, and I I, 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 thought about it after the scene because I was so engrossed in the scene. But was that a oneer? Was that a one take?
2: Oh, oh yeah, oneer. So that, that whole sequence, um, that was the only scene in the film that I wrote, was that, that ridge scene. Okay. Um, and, and we initially thought that we were going to have to, like, fake that somehow. like Because Kellen and I both talked about how we really, really wanted that shootout to be different from the shootout at the end. Because the shootout at the end is, like, all guns blazing, full-on mm-hmm. action movie, right? Everybody's just firing everywhere. But we were like, this one should be scarier. Like, you know, what's the, the opposite of having a hundred guns is having one gun, but that one gun being really scary. You know, it's like, so it's the gun you can't see. Mm-hmm. So when we initially talked about it, we thought we were going to have uh, sort of like a tree line. So I was like, oh, it'd be really cool if we do sort of a cat and mouse camera movement where I roll with you and I stay with you and we don't know where Micah is and we move through the trees. Um, but then we got our, our producers found that location where there was like that legitimate, like hundred year old barn, you know, made of stone. We we're like, we have to use that. And then the opposite face of that was that steep cliff with the ravine and the, the tree, the one single tree, you know, that sniper tree. So that was all, it was so picturesque that we were like, we have to use this spot. Um, but then we, we still really wanted that feeling. So we got there, uh, th- that was like the day before we started shooting that run of production of in Seligman. We got like maybe 20 minutes to go to that location and kind of scout it. And and so Kellen and I like walked it together, like from the edge of the barn up to the fence. We talked about what we'd have to do, like technically to be able to get the camera and the sound gear up over the fence and onto the other side. And then, you know, how to move from there. And then we were like, let's take it a step further. And let's take our other actors who are supposed to be fighting up on the ridge and actually just put them on the ridge. So instead of having to cut back, we could just pan up and see people up there shooting at each other, see gun smoke, come back down, follow the action. Um, so on the day when we did it, uh, it was like exhausting and we only got to do it, uh, twice. We only did the, We only needed to do it twice. Um, cause the first take that we did actually worked. Um, and then we did a second take just to try to clean up some elements. and Kellen was so like legitimately exhausted on the second tank that it just felt like it hit harder cause he was like actually just like falling on the ground, breathing super heavy. So it worked really well. But yeah, that was, that was all the one take we did. We ran from the barn to the fence. And for that period of time, from the barn to the fence, it was uh, George and Russell, who was, again, the producer and, and stunt coordinator and our fight coordinator. They were carrying um, Richard trail our sound guy. They were carrying his sound gear. And Richard was staged on the other side of the fence hiding. He was, like, below the grass line. So I ran with Kellen to the fence with a camera and then handed the camera off stealthily to my gapper. And then it was my, like, sort of lighting uh team essentially like one man lighting team and then i climbed over the fence while he tracked kellen's movements up to the top and then handed it to me in time for kellen to fall and while that was happening the producers were handing the sound gear over the fence to richard who was then waiting to pick it up so then from there we cat and moused it around down into the ravine and had to make sure that like the timing for when kellen like because at the same time uh the actor playing micah jeremy he was stationed behind a certain rock so he had to know when to fire at Kellen so we could see the gun smoke on camera, shout his lines from a distance, and then climb a little mini ridge to get in position for us to have Kellen shoot him at the end. Spoiler alert! Uh, <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was it was really cool, uh, super exhausting, and the whole time we were doing it, um, because we didn't have actual like squibs and like pyrotechnics, uh, I had to shout whenever there were gunshots and then also shout the cues for the shots. So I had to like scream. Uh, a, an action cue to everyone at the top of the ridge, so they could hear me. So that when I panned up, they weren't just like waiting. So they were always like shooting at each other. So it was crazy. And like we only did two of them, but we were like dead at the end of two of them.
0: So all that work, all that preparation, all all those moving parts. How much uh, footage are we talking about in the actual movie?
1: It's For that, a, it's the whole three, thing. The three and a half minute.
0: Three and a half I minute one take. The
1: one, yeah, we we it was it was everything we intended it to be. It was it was me coming out of the barn wounded, mm-hmm. and then from that point it carries behind my shoulder to me swinging the gun up to aim, and I believe it's a it's a three and a half minute uh, take, and it was both it was the same both times. But yeah, it was like Chef said, it was just cleaning up a couple little things uh i didn't think that falling off the fence was brutal enough the first time i didn't i landed sort of soft and the ground was pretty soft it was a lot of kind of sandy dirt and i thought i could hit this harder i can make that i could sell this a little bit more and make it seem like i'm falling not like i'm jumping off of and and I, and we knew that there would be post sound and and some effects additions that would really bring that home. You know, we taught, we call it our saving private Ryan moment because we, that was sort of the inspiration for it was, you know, Westerns and gunfights in Western movies have a tendency to feel very stylized, whether it's Clint Eastwood or, or John Wayne. And we thought, you know, I bet really getting shot at feels a lot more like combat than it does feeling like, a, you know, like what, what you're used to. And in, in, so we already had our Hollywood shootout. Mm-hmm. at the end of the film. So we thought let's do something you don't see in a western. Let's make a war movie right here. let mm-hmm. Let's try to make it scary and terrifying and and I'm ha- happy to hear that you were were leaning into it so much that you didn't really think about, you know, consciously because if we that's what you want. You don't want people to be like, "Oh, I see what they did." Technically, that's very very <laughs> yeah. very clever. Like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, the point is to make
2: like, you. The point is to make you hold your breath for the shot, not make you like think that we're like good at what we do or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that's exactly what it was. It's, it's, I, it, you get to the end of it, or at least for me, I got to the end of it, and I was just like, "Wait, did we follow him the whole time? Did, was there no cut there?" No, I'm glad I got to ask you about it. Uh, that's so that's that's yeah, awesome. We're,
2: Cal and I are both very, very, very proud of how that scene came out, and also, I mean, just how that experience was. That was just like it was one of those things, where, like. When we finished the take, Kellen and I took, like, a a bloody selfie because he had all this, like, blood and, (laughs) like, uh, sticks and shit, like, stuck to him. So we took a selfie, and then when we got back to the fence, the producers were waiting, and they were like, did it work? Like, did we do it? Because, you know, like, it was just us alone by the time we got to the bottom, like us and the sound guy, so, like, no one else knew if the shot was working or not. We came back, and we're like, we got it. We don't need to do another one. And they were like, let's take a picture. Like, the energy was just, like, really, really high in that moment. Um, except for the poor actors who were up on the ridge because we were down there like taking yeah. together. And, still, and they, had, they had like a 15-minute climb to get back down. It was just funny. Uh.
1: But you, that was, you know, that's one of those moments that we didn't plan for. We, Like I said, Sheffield wrote that entire action sequence because I, I felt like I just creatively, when it went back to going back to writing uh, the first act of the movie... I wasn't stumped necessarily, like I knew where we were going, but I just felt like, take a stab at this because I don't, I don't really know what to do with it. And we didn't really know what we had location-wise either. That was mm-hmm. a big question. Mm-hmm. And so even though I'd like to say that we're super clever and we, we preconceived that whole thing, like that is really born out of necessity. Like when we saw the location, we had a very limited window and we knew we had a full day the next day. And it was already going to be tight. And it ended up being tight. I mean, we literally chased the sun, which ended up also enhancing that scene because that's the scene with the rifle on my shoulder and she takes the long shot and the sun is setting and it's beautiful. That's literally us chasing our day and getting like single takes and not being precious about it and and insisting that we move on. That oneer was a way for us to compensate for how much we had to cover that day. And really yeah. looking at the script and going, we can't go back and forth and section this out. We have got to get through this little set piece as quickly as possible. How do we do that? We just run it out. <laughs> yeah. we, just, we just see what happens. And and when, when it's just me and Chef and he's behind me and I'm running and I'm completely gassed and I'm wearing three layers of leather and there's real people shooting real blanks at me. That's where you kind of forget. That's where the edges sort of blur between we're making a movie and like feeling like a 12 year old in my <laughs> grandparents' backyard with like a stick done playing cowboys and Indians and really getting lost in these little imaginary worlds. Like it's, it's sort of surreal. Um, And, and yeah, after we had to, we had to take a picture to sort of remember the moment because I was like, that's seriously one of the coolest things I've ever done as an actor and when you feel that way on the day you really hope that translates to the film experience like you hope the audience feels that too you know that it's not just it's not it's not a private thing shared experience that yeah some some shots some scenes you just know man this is gonna this is gonna
2: this is gonna rock their world yeah major major shout out to uh, Kevin Ty who did all of our post sounds and and scoring on that because like that was one of the first scenes that he scored but also he probably that, that dude probably spent like a week on that scene alone like just adding in gunshots and making them sound like they were coming from a distance and from the left and right and all over the place and i had done a bunch of post of the effects of like i mean you saw where like the gunshots were hitting the ground and hit the fence posts and stuff and he had to like accentuate all of those and make them feel in your face while still like you know just doing the normal amount of sound cleanup and then adding uh, he created all sorts of like dialogue coming off of the ridge top, so we always felt like the you know the the threat was present even if we were just running with Kellen. So yeah, he he worked his ass off for that scene, and then uh, like you said, it shows.
0: It does. Speaking of inspirations that you talked about earlier, Kellen, uh, I don't know if you happen to see this, but when uh, Chef first posted the the trailer, I completely mistaked you for michael bean like i i thought michael (laughs) bean was in the movie that was
1: you know that's i've gotten so many over the years it's been a running joke depending on kind of what project i'm in and what i'm doing like what is my doppelganger you know (laughs) gotten sam rockwell uh walton goggins but never got michael bean until i grew that mustache and (laughs) i showed up on set and that was like It was it was everybody. Everybody was like, "Oh my gosh, you look you look like Johnny Ringo." Yep, (laughs) it's just like I had never really gone full Tom Selleck before, and so I was just happy I could grow a mustache. But I didn't expect it to be so sort of in your face. I was like, (laughs) "Am I wearing a mustache, or is this mustache wearing me?" Definitely. (laughs) because <laughs> that, that could that could go so horribly wrong we've all seen bad oh, I mean yeah. a bad bad facial hair on an actor is like it's like a bad accent you know <laughs> it's like Dick Van Dyke and Mary Poppins <laughs> you're just like that was the best beard you could come up with like there's how many makeup artists in LA and, and that's that's what you chose <laughs> but it's all real I grew it out
0: there you go so. but <laughs> what were there any other inspirations when either acting or or uh, writing
1: I don't know. I mean, probably not intentionally, but again, like I said, I grew up in the, on the Western. And so sometimes I'd find myself writing things that I didn't realize were references. Okay.
2: But yeah, here, here's something s- that's, uh, from a, from an outsider's perspective, because I, besides my dad being a huge John Wayne fan and me, like getting a little bit of that coming, you know, growing up, I didn't actually grow up, uh, eating Westerns like breakfast cereal, like Helen did. And, uh, What's cool is that our producers, obviously, they're lifelong Western fans, and you know, so when we were on set, like if Kellen was sort of explaining a scene to one of them, it was interesting for me to listen as a third party because it's like they would speak the same language. He he would just be like, "This is this character in this scene in this movie at this moment," and they were like, "Oh yeah," and like they always got it. And like I never, I I didn't understand half of the references that he pulled out for Westerns. <laughs> But like the producers always knew and he, he was always throwing them out. Like whenever somebody was like, cause we had a lot of actors on this who were uh, most of their career has been stuntmen. So for them to like then transition to have, I mean, they've done other films with like lines and stuff, but um, you know, we, we treat it very seriously when we're on set as far as like rehearsal, getting the performance, right. Um, if we like what you're doing, we want to get a close up of it and we, There's almost never a take where one of us doesn't have some sort of performance note for them because we love what somebody brings, but then we want to take that and make that the most effective, you know, version of that it can be for the scene. Um, So we were, we were, you know, giving everybody performance notes, especially these guys. And uh, Kellen would always relate to them in like a Western language that I didn't speak, which I thought was really cool.
1: (laughs) And I I felt like that was just sort of a shorthand that developed with, you know, sometimes you want the, you want somebody to give you directions with how to get from point A to point B in the shortest amount of time possible. And people who are either non-actors or don't have a lot of experience, they don't, the one, one of the blessings of working with people like that is they don't overthink things. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes not all the time, obviously trained actors are, are fantastic, but sometimes in myself included trained actors get in their own way. You know, sometimes it's literally like, can you say this? Your character is sort of Kevin Costner in this whatever moment. But then they get into their headspace of like, well, but I'm not really feeling that because when I did the homework, I, you know,
0: mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm.
1: you, you can it can get a little muddled. But there were enough people on this set who, who who I would say just there was a I don't know at what point they started to trust us or what that was what what the merit for that trust maybe it came from other stuff that we've done or maybe they trusted the producers and that's why they showed up and so they're like well if our producers trust these guys then we're going to trust them because you know there can be an ego when you when a guy in his 30s is telling a seasoned stuntman in his 60s who's seen every western 2000 times it's easy for you to think well He's gonna, he's gonna laugh at me if I tell him to do it this way. But um, I think that surprises people that I all those references that they're making, I already, I already know them.
0: You have them all cataloged in the brain.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. If there, if there is sort of a, I mean, if, well, I don't know what the Western equivalent of a Star Wars deep cut nerd is, but I'm that. <laughs> um, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not as volatile. I would say as as some have a tendency to be, or as precious about it, because I do think what one thing as a Western fan is, I like to see the genre growing, and not being stuck in some rigid sort of middle America boundaries. I like seeing where it's going yeah. today. You know. But but I also still appreciate all those old films for what they are, and. and how they're a mirror of the time in which they were created. It, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't ruin it for me, you know. Just like old Disney animation, it's still Pixar can be the greatest technology, but there's still something classical about Peter Pan that I just like revisiting. So yeah, but uh, but it's tricky because other people are fans too, and sometimes being a fan of something is a trap yeah. because then you get real derivative or every other line that you say is just an homage to that one thing. And unless you're Quentin Tarantino pastiche and homage are not always (laughs) friend because nobody does it as well as he does. Right. That's a really tricky thing that I would say as a criticism for most indie Westerns is they just feel like, like, like somebody's, you know, a cover band, like they're right. playing okay. some other band. Like I'd rather see the Stones.
0: Yeah, <laughs> very Speaking of, of westerns, and I'm, 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 I'm telling you, I'll, I'll be wrapping it up here. But I, it's something I've always been curious about is: is it harder to make a period piece than it is a regular movie? Like the the yes having yeah. to deal with finding clothing and, and, and you guys had to do weapons like guns, like that, that revolver that's has a super long uh, barrel. Like.
2: Yeah. Oh man, that, that gun's name, Kellen, correct me if I'm wrong. I believe the name of that gun is Thor's cock. Oh <laughs> yeah. That's uh, the, the guy, the guy who provided all of the training. He gave them that name. It. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he, he gave it that name. That's his gun. Um, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and, um, I would say yes, yes, hundred percent period films are difficult because, uh, you know, I've, I've made indie films where we've been able to sort of exist in the space that we're in and the space that we're in, you know, is like a gorilla situation, right? I've been able to shoot on the streets of downtown LA and anything I get in my frame is cool because we're in downtown LA. Um, or, you know, uh, say like, I want something to feel different and weird. So I just take it But like, so for instance, uh, you know, a character in split lip had cell phones, but I used exclusively cell phones from like the early 2000s because I didn't want it to look, you know, fresh and new. I wanted to like to have that sort of surrealness to it. But I, I was able to make that choice safely. Whereas if you're doing a Western, um, you know, you know that every clothing decision that you put on camera is going to be put under a microscope. Was that actually available in the early 19th century or, you know, like and also, if I pan my camera slightly to the left and catch the front bumper of somebody's Dodge truck in the background, have I just ruined the entire scene? You know, it, it's it's very difficult to to shoot a scene where you have to keep your audience under like a veiled magic trick the entire time. You know, they're never you can never like slip from that. Um, and I will say that you'll never notice them, but there were upwards of fifty to sixty VFX shots in the film um that were done between uh, a couple different artists that were really talented that just removing things from the frame like you know like removing lights from buildings removing light bulbs that were you know seen somewhere in the background just coming off of the roof that we never noticed when we were shooting the,
1: the bottom of the cup
2: like the label yeah yeah the bottom, yeah, of, are, the bottom yeah. of the cup uh some of the like a lot of the boots nowadays that are made uh for modern day cowboys have rubber soles, um but they have you know classic styling so a lot of our boots you know, these guys would want to do stunts where they could get good footing. So they'd want, like, these good boots with rubber soles, and then we'd have to remove the soles from the boots. post. So uh, that's a bunch of a bunch of hoops that we had to go through. Uh, you know, there were there were many times, and I, I will say that I'm very glad that we got to keep a lot of the compositions that Kellen and I love in the film as far as, like, the shot composition. Um, I'm very proud of many of the visuals. But there was other stuff that we wanted to do, and, you know, different angles on scenes that we wanted to get that we just couldn't because it's, you know, an inch to the left of my frame, it's no longer a period film. So I would say like, and, I, and when it comes to a technical aspect, it's definitely a lot more difficult.
1: I would say I a hundred percent agree with everything he said, but I will add that as an actor, at least for me personally, that I, and maybe it's just comes from with the experience, but I'm far more insecure in modern films in the the other films that I've made as a director and then as an actor, more insecure in the character and the story I was telling than I was in this one. And I don't know if that confidence comes from just being comfortable with the genre. Um, I was comfortable with the other films I made, but I, I guess I was a little more sensitive to, am I being entertaining? Is this working? Am I likable? And I didn't have to worry about any of those things with this because I, I knew that the genre and the plot and all the action that that those were all sort of um, protections against that insecurity because I I could completely disappear into Travis Royal and not worry that I was being too vulnerable that he was a reflection of me and I remember one day on set I don't remember what we were shooting but. It was like during downtime we were setting up for a different scene and chef and I were talking and he he just casually mentioned and this is pretty deep into like us being done and he's like he said something like I've never seen you this locked into a character before. And it was just sort of an offhand comment but it, it we've worked together several times and so having to float back and forth in the, in the first few experiences that always left me kind of like, are we on the right track? Am I, am I doing this right? And there might be some inconsistency there that I was always nervous about. You know, you're always like, are they going to like me? But I never worried about that with Travis Royal. Like I, I could, I justified who he was as a character. I enjoyed being him. Uh, Like he was a blast to play. Um, But it was also a blast to direct. And so it was, you know, so from that aspect, as an actor, and I would, I would think everybody would feel this way that worked on this film as an actor, like harder perhaps. But you can call anybody in this cast and ask them if they'd do it again, and they're they're like, when <laughs> you know. That, whereas I've been in other films, I'm like, yeah, I kind of don't want to do a romantic comedy again. It's kind of boring. Ready to move on, you know.
0: Uh, you know, I find that that super interesting. Like, I, obviously, I would never want to say that I can get into the mind of an actor or even presume about your process. But, uh, do you think it has to do anything with the costume? Like the fact that you're wearing something that not something you normally wear, as opposed to a modern film, you're going to be wearing clothes that, you know, Kellen might actually wear.
1: Well, that's the thing. Like honestly, and, and I was sort of, I've always been aware of this, like as a director, everybody has like their kind of approach and their style. As when I'm just directing, I like to be as comfortable as possible. And so I wear practical but comfortable shoes. I'm usually wearing a ball cap um, and and a T-shirt. And a lot of the guys in this film, I'm convinced, like, they wear this attire every day, all day, anyways, <laughs> which just added to the authenticity. Right. But for me, it was the jumping off point that once I put on those pants that are Way too tight and way too high waisted, and the boots that just fit. Wearing cowboy boots is just a different. I mean, I live in Florida. I wear flip flops every single day. <laughs> put on cowboy boots, and you strap on a gun and and leather chaps, and you sit in a saddle. Ninety percent of the acting is already taking care of itself, and that doesn't happen on some of my other films where you know it's more of a a small relationship drama, two people talking in a room and the wardrobe is like, whatever I brought that day.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's harder to find the line between where does Kellen end and, and who is this character and how do I find that? Once I started growing the hair out and putting the costume together, it, it th- this is kind of funny, but I did not attempt to do a voice for Travis Royal, but I will say that when I went back into the studio in post to do ADR, I had a, I had a real hard time. Wow, matching the performance to the point where it was like noticeable and it was kind of frustrating. And it was, I don't understand why the conditions were so different that for whatever reason my voice would not reach the register that it needed to be, and it it slightly altered the performance in a way that was kind of, I, for me and both. Sheffield also agrees that, you know, it wasn't as strong as what we had in the in the film. But it was unfortunately because the sound it just needed to be uh, ADR'd, and that's a weird thing. Like I didn't go in and be like, I'm going to do like rough Texas. You know, it was just I don't know where the voice came from or what the voice even is or how to replicate it. Obviously,
2: but I'll tell it, you right now, it, it came from the dust. <laughs> <laughs> Every. <laughs> Every scene, every scene, there was dust. And whenever we'd go inside, uh, because we wanted the light to look so cool, we were always just like pumping haze into every room. <laughs> so, like, at, at no point in this filming process did Kellen get to breathe any clear oxygen with either dust <laughs> or haze. Yeah, so he, he he turned into a smoker, like with his voice. That's I'd true. To.
1: It did. It was a it was a sort of a talk low and slow roll for me, which again is weird for me because I tend to play characters that talk too much, that talk fast, that have a lot of witty things to say. It was really fun to unload all of that onto the Brody character and not have that weight and responsibility. I really wanted Travis to be more uh, sort of internal and, and internalize everything and try to say as much as I could with my face without actually you know, talking my way through the movie. Um that was so that was fun for me to be able to
0: Well I, I have to say you love. you definitely pulled it off it it was it was a great performance Thank you very much Um I I've talked to Chris about this before uh I usually ask you know what it is when you have a free moment that you know you you actually aren't dealing with family you aren't writing something you aren't working towards the next movie uh, what is it that you like to spend on your free time? What is it you geek out about? Uh, obviously, Chris just uh, dropped new podcasts this week. Like, I don't know yeah. what he has time to do something like that. He and
1: his, his wife are little writing nerds now.
0: So, yeah, everybody.
2: Right. I mean, that's what COVID did to us. So.
0: <laughs> Check out it's uh, uh, I Want to Tell You a Story.
2: I wrote you a story
0: I wrote you a story, okay.
2: yeah, yeah, there's an intentional blank list. So I wrote you a blank story uh, because every episode is a different author or writer that comes on um, with like a different theme or a theme and an element and they have to write a short story and then read it to you. So it's kind of like listening to the audio listening to the podcast is like listening to an audiobook and then we always discuss with the writers like their inspiration behind it, what their process is like, and just kind of like some general chatter so. It's a, it's a fun little it's a fun little recording session. We're actually probably going to do another episode tonight after this. So
0: very cool. So yeah. So Kellen, it, obviously you, are, you you talked about Star Wars and westerns so far. What what is it that you love to geek out about?
1: Um, I'm a huge uh, Indiana Jones nerd. Um, probably more than anything. Even probably more than westerns. Wow. Um, but I the, that also traces there's sort of it crossbreeds with my love of Disney um as I mentioned I live in Florida I live about 15 minutes from Disney World no way but I am a I'm an Arizona boy but I just moved to Florida this summer with my my wife and our three kids and we're we're all huge Disney nerds um it's a little different now with with the pandemic you know it's kind of put a, a little bit of a a damper on our experiences as far as that is concerned, but we're, we're still loving living here in Florida, but we just decided uh, a while back about a year ago that while our kids were really young and didn't have a whole lot holding them down, like extracurriculars and, you know, relationships with friends and things like that while they're still very young and informative that wouldn't it be cool to spend a couple of years going to the Disney parks as often as possible. And because the cost of living, like moving to California, just wasn't practical though. I love the state of California and I do love Disneyland. Um, it didn't make sense for us uh, just for financial reasons, but Florida became a real possibility. The more we looked at it and the more we came out to visit, the more we fell in love with it. And so, I'm a, I'm just a huge Disney nerd. I follow, I re I watched a ton of like Disney vlogs and I'm, I, I, I get obsessed over what they do creatively, but I'm also interested in what they do as a, on the company corporate level. I'm fascinated by the way this giant machine, which has been around, you know, for, for half a century, how they continue to evolve and, be on the forefront of entertainment and yet still make it feel nostalgic and personal while being progressive at the same time. It's very weird because it sort of mirrors the politics of its founder, Walt Disney, Mm. who was himself a conservative, but he was also a futurist. Mm -hmm. He was progressive in many ways. He was very much about looking forward. And as an artist and as a filmmaker, I am obsessed with that because I love looking back and trying to reflect the past in my work. I I watch older films more than I watch newer films. Um, But I also am always looking for ways in in the next film I make or the next thing I write to do something that nobody else has done before. And even Sheffield and I were having a conversation earlier today about working on another project and we were talking about like, well, how do we top that? How do we, you know, what does this look like to you? so one day, you know, I'll get to make a a film. Disney will hire me, and, and uh, whatever I make for them will turn into a ride, and uh, then I can die happy. There that you go. Would be, that's the <laughs> pinnacle. Like every every director, every actor wants an Oscar. I want a ride <laughs> based on an IP that I created. That's my that is my Everest. I can
2: only uh, see
0: it happening a,
1: as I'm a filmmaker.
2: I'm going to be directing something for Warner Brothers, and Kevin will be directing something for Disney, and we're just going to compete directly on who whoops whose ass at the box office. <laughs> That's
1: it. We're going to we're going to insist that they open the same weekend. Yeah. Warner's I'm and Disney's going to be me. like, this is a terrible terrible idea. I'm like, no, trust me. It's going to work. We're right? Listen to that punk ass
2: mouse <laughs> We have a bet to settle.
0: <laughs> I love it. Uh, once again, thank you both for coming on and talking about this uh, great movie. Um, it, thank you. It, it's in Harkins Theaters in Arizona.
2: Is it also yes.
1: streaming at the moment? It is not, yeah.
2: But yeah, it's not. It's theater exclusive, and we just got an extended week at Harkins, so we'll be there for yeah. a whole another week.
1: And, and I, I'm aware that um, it's also opening in the Midwest at a, some theater chains and will probably also open at more independent theater canes in Arizona. Awesome. Following its Harkins run, we've already had talks with uh, some other people that, that early people that saw the film and love it and want it for the smaller communities uh, in Arizona. So hopefully as COVID and everything starts to mutate, there will be more opportunities for people to, but well, we're so confident in what we made that, you just know this thing is going to have a life of its own, some form or fashion. It's organically, it's a it's a crowd pleaser. You know, it's it it was designed that way. So, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. So if if you have the opportunity to go see it in the theater and you feel safe enough, please do. You'll it will be a yes. good time. Uh, I I guarantee it. So
1: it, it hits a little different on a big on a big screen. It I
0: definitely will. <laughs> yeah. Uh, is there any social medias you want to give out or websites?
1: Sure. Uh, you can follow me at Broomhorse. horse. Uh, broom horse is all one word. It's on Instagram. That's my production company. Um, I'm not the best at, at, uh, updating, but, uh, and I don't know that I'm that interesting, but that's, that's the best way to find out about
2: projects that I'm, working on that's where i've shared all the content for
1: bills revenge okay
2: and uh you guys can find me at chef S H E F F underscore shoots underscore indie chef shoot indie if you plug that into google it should come right up um but there's a uh, if you guys are interested in seeing some behind the scenes stuff for royals there's a ton of bts pictures on there um the page is pretty much exclusively for filmmaking so i do all sorts of like uh, technique tutorials and stuff like that. I love answering questions. If you guys are interested in film, you have random questions about it, uh, hit me up on Instagram. I love to talk about it.
0: And uh, whenever you guys decide to do the sequel to Royal's Revenge, just remember that, you know, there were Asians building the railroads. So <laughs> I <laughs> might know a person. No, I'm just joking.
1: I think we just had our plot line. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mitch, Uh, I would have put you in the first one, so you better come out for the second one. Okay, sounds
0: great. So, until next time, this is Hey Mitch on the Geek Elite Media Network saying, always remember to
1: Geek Out!
0: out.
1: This concludes our broadcast.